And uh, I am exhausted, but me and you, we're best of friends. I'll do whatever it takes to be with you. <laughs> yes, it's me and you. Anyways, <laughs> uh, if you want to support our show, patreon.com slash CF. <laughs> do me a huge, huge favor. Go on to Google or just open up your uh-huh. Chrome thing and type in uh, type in <laughs> Florida man and then your birthday. So May, May 25th. Something. 25th. Sorry. Listen, I've got, I have my mom's birthday. Then I have Aaron's. Then I have That's yours. It's, it gets confusing. All the important women in my life. Oh, in one no. Uh, Alabama man. Well, the, the first one is Alabama man charged in double murder. <laughs> That's not as funny. Of, of teens. Oh, no. Why? What, what is yours? Mine says... Uh, let me pull it up onto Twitter. Yeah, that's not as funny. Now it sounds horrible. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, Dayton Daily News. Awkward. <laughs> sure is. Um, mine pulled up on Twitter really quick because this has been fun. Says, hold please. Mine said, Florida man swung a sword in road rage attack. Arlene Spensley, so like, oh, so then our uh, good friend Natalie said, Florida man finds Panther sitting on father's front porch. <laughs> oh, Florida men. And right underneath it, it says, Florida man hits pregnant girlfriend with bag of tor- tortilla chips over baby's <laughs> paternity. Good Lord, Florida. Good Lord. <laughs> so I shouldn't be enjoying this as much as I am. Um, Arlene Spensley's is pretty funny as well. Hers says, uh, Florida man jumped into crocodile pit, gets gets bit, claims he dot, dot, dot. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So if you want to have a good time, type in the type in the phrase Florida man followed by your birthday into Google. So, Luke. Anything new in your life? <laughs> yeah, so I guess it's time to announce this, huh? I was going to wait. We, yeah, should we and by it? announce it, you mean tell me as well, because I don't know. I told you. Uh, I told via you one text message after I sleuthed it out. I was in a Go. meeting. Um, I know. I was in the <laughs> pool. <laughs> so what's going on, man? I'm getting a new job. Whoa. Uh, whoa. I will be the plan giving officer and major gifts officer for Glen Mary Home Missionaries. Uh, for those of you who don't know who uh, who Glen Mary Home Missionaries are, and I'm, which is everyone, which is every, yeah, they uh, they actually are like one of the best kept on the secrets of the American Catholic Church. It's kind of insane. So they go primarily to um, rural areas where the Catholic population is less than three percent. And of the of the county's population, and the poverty rates are twice as high as the national average. Wow! So they serve people in the poor of the poor areas of the country, some of and uh, where there's not a lot of Catholics, and it's where a lot of, of dioceses either can't, uh, like you know, can't get to. There's just not a, they don't have they don't have a church there, and they like start a church and they like serve the spiritual and the uh, material needs of the people there so is this a religious order uh, i don't think so <laughs> okay <laughs> um 
I like how you're yeah. already selling them. You're like, they're American Catholicism's best kept secret. <laughs> I'm like, oh gosh, I'm going to get that on the promotional <laughs> brochure you're going to send me. All your <laughs> no, previous jobs send still send them I'm to me. I'm not going to send it to any of my friends because I learned my lesson. No one wants to support what I'm doing besides Fazzy. <laughs> <laughs> the only one who every time is like, yeah, man, I'll give. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, what? I work for the church. How dare you ask this of me? <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask me to give. <laughs> Unless it's a paycheck for a sweet, sweet talk. <laughs> hmm. Um. About us. Okay. So, just reading this really quick. Um. They are a Catholic society of priests and brothers. Ah. Oh. A society, and it's kind of cool. So, they started by this priest, uh, Father, um, uh, Father William Howard Bishop, out in the Archdiocese of of Baltimore, and he wanted um, to serve what was called No Priestland USA. Oh. And so he was, a, and the Archbishop out in Cincinnati, uh, this is back in the 40s, so that would have been, I don't remember, uh, was like, yeah, come here. And so they're based out of here in Cincinnati, but they serve uh, pr- like primarily in the rural south. So Appalachia and um World South. So I'm I'm really it's a it's a, it was really tough actually uh, to have to say goodbye to. Uh, I told my core team last night that was brutal. I'm mean, not brutal, but it was just you know hard. But they were really excited for me, and and so it's it's hard to leave. I I work with some great people. That's been the hardest part. Uh, the people that I serve, the people that I work with, are just some of they're really they're, so. Um, but this is just like the next. A logical career step. They're very supportive of what we're doing with the podcast. This can continue as is. Um, <laughs> like I can talk about who I work. They like want me to talk about who who I work for. Oh, that's so funny. So yeah, it was weird because the podcast was kind of like make or break deal for me. I was like, if I can't do this, I'm not going to take the job. So because uh, I love my Gomer. You're welcome. You're welcome, America. Luke and Gomer will endure at least another year. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, very humbled and very grateful for my time here. Uh, I won't name who, who, who I'm at yet just because I'm still employed by them. But um, <laughs> I am counting down the days when you can <laughs> unload. Oh. Oh, there's going to be an un, un I there's a list of of un, of unloading that's going to happen, <laughs> and I cannot wait. Patreon.com slash tf. <laughs> there will be a reckoning, everyone. I was no, just going to say that there will be a reckoning. <laughs> there was a fire, 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 fire. I thought the same thing too, but I didn't say it. Which <laughs> uh, like we're besties. Hey, well, let me let me say a couple things real quick. So I'm gonna. Whoa, I just burped and did not mean to at all. So everyone needs to pray for my daughter, Katiri Marie Gormley. She's going to make her uh, first Holy Communion Saturday morning. Very excited about that. My buddy. Your buddy. Your buddy, Katiri. Um, So she's going to make her first Holy Communion. And then, uh, so my in-laws are in town right now. Um, And then on Sunday, I'm flying to Cincinnati. And I am doing a three-night parish mission. Um, for some churches in Cincinnati, I think St. John the Baptist is like the main point person. Is it Saint, I thought it was St. John Newman. 
there's some saints. There might be an immaculate in there. Uh, I don't. I just don't have the information right in front of me. So a little bit with a gimpy leg. So it's all of this. It's all of these. Uh, it's three churches. They're all independent churches, but they want to do work together in the Cincinnati area. They're relatively close to each other. So I'm doing a three night parish mission: one here, one there, one there. Um, and it's the same one that I, I did f- up in Detroit. What? I thought they were a parish region. No, they're not. They're they have independent pastors and staffs and all that. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, yeah. okay. Cool. Yeah, it's super interesting. Sorry. They just really want to be collaborative, and so which I applaud. I think that's amazing. And um, there's a lot of that in that archdiocese, from what I've heard. Yeah, from those people <laughs> over there. Um, and so that's one of the things that uh, I'm doing. And then I come home from that, and then the following Thursday. Um, me and you are flying to San Diego. Uh, I just talked to one of the people there, Pamela, and Pam said that uh, they're actually getting an uptick in people coming because we've been talking about it on the show. So Thursday night, <laughs> April 4th, come and watch us in San Diego. We're going to do a Catching we'll, Foxes Live. We'll be at the Mission San Diego. Uh, starts, at, starts at 7 p.m., 10 bucks for tacos and beer, April 4th on the Mission San Diego. Diego, ten dollars for tacos and beer. Very excited. And Aunt D's gonna be there, guys. Aunt D. Oh man, I'm excited just for that. Oh man, if uh, I'm just saying, when Aunt D and Uncle Wade are in town, uh, there's gonna be some drinking. There's gonna be some talking about like tech stuff, and Wade's gonna crush anything, any ideas or thoughts that we have because he's a genius, and I am, am not. <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna crush your any thoughts you like have about Apple. And <laughs> remember when he said the Windows tablet was better and you almost lost your mind? <laughs> no, I, I officially did lose my mind. And I lost all respect for Uncle. <gasps> what if he's the Wade? Uh, no, there's no. Uh, he'd be a little bit more blunt and not as weird. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Wade. How many Anchorman jokes do you think are going to be made when we're in San Diego? Here's the thing. We can't do that because it's all we're going to want to do. Like, we're going to, like, walk in and go, whale's vagina. And everyone's just going to stare at us and just be like, Boo. and we'll be like, yeah. We made those <laughs> jokes very, 15 years ago. We're I done. <laughs> <laughs> it's like how every time we go to Atlanta, we always say hot Lena. And then John gets all moody, and then I feel bad. Everyone from Atlanta gets mad when you call it Hot Lana, which only means I will say Hot Lana more often. <laughs> exactly. So anyways, <laughs> www.catchingfoxes.fm. Um, <laughs> you should never tell us you don't like something. We'll keep doing it in, with intention. We? Um, what's a weird we? thing about your city that you don't like? <laughs> We <laughs> yes, you do it as well. Yes, that's true. Uh, what's a weird thing about your city that you don't like that people do? A weird thing? Uh, I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, Houston's just perfect, so everyone acknowledges it when they enter. It's true. Uh, you know, I don't know, man. The only thing I don't like about Houston is the fact that it has no definite boundaries. It just is. It like everything in Texas. It just is. It just is, and it sprawls outwards. But I don't. People don't like H Town. I'm cool with that. Crunk Town. We can do that all day. I found out that other people in Texas don't really care for Houston. Okay, so San Antonio has the most 
like Mexican influence of the big cities. Dallas is the most like truly like southern of the big cities. Mm-hmm. Austin, big hair. Austin is big hair yeah, very big here. Austin is the most eclectic and urbanite ish um, of the big cities. But Houston, being the biggest of all the big cities, is the oil energy capital. So it's just filled with transplants. Everyone that is in Houston, very, I mean, the running joke of the, of like the, the priesthood is it's so hard to actually find someone from Houston for Houston. Like almost everyone that's in the seminary, very few of them were born here. And so, um, which is, Hmm. which is weird when you have a major seminary in the, in the diocese, like so few of them are actually from there. So, um, I mean, it's just, it's just the, it's, it's an anomaly. It has a lot of all of the big city stuff. Got a lot of that good old Tex-Mex Mexican type stuff. We got the Southern stuff. We got the, uh, normal urban American, you know, whatever, but it's its own thing. It's its own thing. And people are afraid of individuality. <laughs> That's true. Uh, I think I get most annoyed with just, just like, oh, Ohio's stupid jokes because Ohio isn't stupid. Ohio's awesome. Eh. You know, I, so I was just in Findlay, Ohio. I fell mm-hmm. in love with Findlay, Ohio. I did a parish. Small town Ohio is wonderful. It is. It was, so it's about, I think they said 45,000 people. Mm, don't quote me. Marathon oil and gas is out there. Marathon petroleum, one or the other. Um, and so that's like the big organization that sustains a lot. There's a Jeep Wrangler thing out near there. Um, but it was, it's downtown scene was like a hipster's paradise, but it's legit. It is legit. It was awesome. Does it have a lot of beautiful old buildings to turn of the century it, kind of stuff? It has a classic main street. Classic small town mainstream. I love that. I freaking love yeah, that. Yeah, and a lot of the a lot of the you now there is like some economic you know like crappiness that you know yeah, you sure. see the boarded up buildings on Main Street and whatnot. But a lot of them are being revitalized. And I mean to be honest, they're mostly like hipster eateries and beer breweries. But it's awesome. The places that I went. So here's the funny thing: this mission team, right? This is one of the most organized missions I've ever been on. Only like two or three different missions have like full dedicated teams of like volunteers and staff that oversee it. And so they're like, we'll go to this new brewery and we'll meet there and have our – you'll get to meet the staff and we'll have a fun dinner and uh, and we'll talk. They totally forgot Sunday was St. Patty's Day. So I land. <laughs> they, it takes an hour and 45 minutes to get to town. I get to the hotel. I'm chillaxing, getting showered, scrubbing off the airplane. And then we show up and there is a live band that apparently has been playing for six hours. And it's 5 o'clock in the evening now. And we could barely get a table. At one point, there was like nine of us around a four table, the four top table. And then, uh, but the music was so loud, we couldn't talk the entire time until they would go on like a little break. <laughs> it was so funny. And here's the awkward part. So at one point, the guy goes, hey, get, do you want a drink? And he slides the beer menu over to me. So I look at the beer menu and I order, uh, what do they call it? A Hulahan's Irish Red. And mm. then we all sit down and we're able to sit down and the lady comes out. Everyone else got water and I'm drinking beer. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's going to be one heck of a mission. Okay. <laughs> it's just more of this. Yeah. I plan on being drunk before I get up in front of a live studio audience. I mean, congregation. <laughs> you are my, uh, what time do you get here on Sunday? Uh, okay. My flight, it's in the morning. Um, let me pull it up real oh, good. quick. Okay. Well, go ahead and drink in on Sunday night then. Uh, oh, sorry, afternoon. So I get here <sighs> at what? 
I get in at two thirty. Okay. Do, does the mission start that night? Yeah. Sunday, okay. Monday, Tuesday. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a brief commercial break, and I want to tell you about a new Kickstarter campaign. That's right. You guys remember Matt Martinusen? Of course you do. You're like, Matt Martinusen? That's a household name. He's the one that came up with the Catholic card game. He also came up with the Ultimate Catholic Comic Book. All of these Kickstarter programs and the expansion packs. He's raised over $92,000 for Catholic projects. Right now, the new project is a book on St. Thomas Aquinas's Five Ways written by Matt Frad. Yes, that's right. A Tale of Two Mats. Matt Martinusen is producing and publishing this book via Kickstarter for Matt Frad. So what is the book? Matt Frad breaks down each way of, of St. Thomas's Five Ways of Proving the Existence of God. He explains what it means and how to use it the way you should in a modern conversation, Right. So there's like a note section, and there's a gorgeous, super awesome illustration of St. Thomas. You can see it on the Kickstarter page. They are printing it in a sturdy hardcover, and it has a phenomenal look and feel. Now, here's the crazy thing. Matt Frad is not making any money off of this book, okay? He's not making any money off this book. He wants to get this book out there, and he reached out to Matt Martinusen in order to get the job done. How cool is this? The book is $15, no extra shipping in the U.S. The Kickstarter, uh-oh, ends March 31st at midnight Eastern time. That's right. Instead of a normal four-week, 30-day Kickstarter program, they're doing it in two weeks. And guess what? Yep, I went <laughs> today and I bought two books, hardcover. I have no regrets. I even upped my pledge to be more than the $2 amount because here's the deal. I had a massive conversion to stay in my Christian faith when I was in high school struggling with it when I encountered the five ways of St. Thomas. Just to think that more people out in the world can encounter it in a modern way makes me happy. So the Kickstarter ends March 31st at midnight. Go to the show notes for the actual link, or you could type in the five ways of St. Thomas in uh, Kickstarter search, and it'll come up immediately. All right. God bless you all. And Matt, you're, you're the tale of two mats, Matt squared. You guys are doing awesome things. All right. Thank you so much for supporting us here at catching foxes. So, um, well, we've had a lot of good stuff to talk about. You want to get into today's, uh, stuff we're going to discuss. Absolutely, man. So the world's horrible. Yes. <laughs> um, it, I, it, it's kind of weird. So I'm in a really weird place right now because I have so many, like things that are great happening. Like we're trying to buy a house. We just put an offer down on a house yesterday. We'll hear back today one, but it's a a seller's market. So this is horribly stressful. I mean, I find it fun, but it's like the letdown does Mm -hmm. suck. There were two other offers as well. And it went up that day. Oh no. So yeah, it's one of those. Um, But, um, and then I'm starting this new job. That's really exciting. But also, you know, but like the thing in New Zealand, man, uh, I think yeah. there are up to 50 people who were killed in that mosque. Yeah. Uh, people are talking about getting rid of the electoral, uh, I probably pronounced that wrong, the electoral uh, college. Electoral, yeah. yeah, I don't agree with that at all, but like the, the amount of like uh, hatred that I see towards the Catholic Church now, yeah. uh, it is a dark place, and I'm no longer scared to die because I'm like, get me out of this. <laughs> That's not true. Um, <laughs> I don't know, man. It, like, I, I just, it's dark. 
You know, it's yeah. super, super dark. I think it's true that like being alive today, the most heroic thing that we can do is hold on for dear life. Like it is. <laughs> yeah. That's what it feels like. Yeah. It's like, it's like when you're, when, when the day is calm and breezy, you know, you have a nice, like your heroism is a whole bunch of stuff that you could do. But when you're in the middle of a hurricane and you're outside, the most heroic thing you could do is hold on and stand in front of a camera and report the weather, apparently. That was the least of their problems. Hey, Rick, get to safer ground. Glenn, get back behind the building. I don't want you blown away. Or worse, washed away. He was timing those waves out, watching that water move in. He's been in these situations a lot, by the way. Right. The, uh, the whole idea of our culture being so upended and, like, the... Uh, I was watching... a just a bunch of YouTube videos where they're kind of talking about this. And it's amazing how the extremists are the only ones carrying the conversation. You know what I mean? Like, hmm. yeah, they're the voices. I, I, obviously they're the loudest and they're getting heard, but it's almost like we are so, um, and I think this is true. And I think a lot of people have said this, but like, we don't necessarily want to be associated with the extremists on our side. But we are terrified of the people on the other side. Important things, and this is in our forthcoming book about how to have impossible conversations. Peter and I just finished. One of the most important things is to learn to disavow the extremists on your side. Mm -hmm. So if you see yourself on the left, say, you know, those guys, they don't represent me way off to the left. Mm -hmm. I think I'm on the left, but I distinguish myself from them and learn how to articulate that. Yeah. And then the left can clean up its side. You can get that main body of people on the left. Speaking out, saying those the 8% don't represent us. Here's what we really believe. And on the right, the same thing. If you're on the right, you say, you know what? Fine, I'm on the right. Good. Those dudes way over there, these guys that want to dissolve the government and drown it in the bathtub used to be the saying, right? Or shrink it to the size you can drown in the bathtub. They don't represent me. Okay, that goes too far. So we'll side with the crazies on our side because we find, you know, 20% of their thing tolerable, whereas the other side, we may not find any of it tolerable. And... I do think we are exhausted as a as a, as an American people. Like we don't like electorally. Like which news do you consume? Like everything is polemical. And like I was watching some of these interviews um, where this woman said, you know, no one has been more hostile to and destructive of our American democracy than President Trump. And there was that the what's his name Bradshaw Crenshaw, the dude with the eye patch. He was oh yeah 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 IED yeah. blew up in his face and pirate whore oh yeah that's right I shouldn't make a pirate joke about that that's your <laughs> no you shouldn't <laughs> how did the Saturday Night Live taught you anything Luke um, yeah that's true but he was saying he was on this media roundtable and he was you know the token conservative at this like thing and he was like what how has he destroyed the freedom of the press that was one of the things they brought up they're like well they don't permit you know certain people into the press room and all this stuff he's like yeah but you say the most damning things about him all the time and you're not dead no one's killed there's no newspapers being shut down in fact newspaper revenue has skyrocketed under trump they call it the trump bump and so it's really funny like um this one guy remarked um he was sitting in a cafe in portland uh and they're drinking six dollar lattes and this one girl is right after the trump election and this one girl she's probably like 18 19 years old is saying this is how democracy dies or democracy is dead. And he like looks at her and he's like, you're drinking a $6 latte in, in paradise. Like you're fine. And it is interesting. I mean, like not everyone is fine, but, um, 
there is this experience of like we're just caught between these extremes and I feel so like I, I feel exhausted and then you hear something like New Zealand with the mm-hmm. the horror like mm-hmm. uh, I mean I just I just I, I'm beside myself I'm beside myself with this bullshit. <laughs> There was this New York Times article about uh, – and I, I'm trying to bring it up, and I can't – I'm fine that we should be more pre-prepared. But uh, where the guy talks about how our inability to compromise has uh, – or our you know unwillingness to compromise. And this is I, – I, I hope I am getting this right – has like made things worse. And so what it does as we, as we are feel more in – trenched into our positions the other side becomes like more of a villain yeah and we get more extreme in what we're going for so like i cannot believe and i feel like for the most part i want to add a big caveat to this or or a big preface i think we've done a kind of a good job of not trying to take the whole like the democrats are bad line and trying to find the good you know, and yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I, I have always, even when when Obama was president in the very beginning, people would be like, "He's the devil," and I'd be like, "He's not a de- the devil. He's a human person. Like, he's yeah. a human person. Calm down. Now let's rethink this stuff." But I cannot believe the amount of people that are now. I, I don't want to say that they are they are like advocating for this, but they are they are publicly stating that they think it's okay for a woman to have a third trimester abortion or it should be left up to the woman yeah i'm horrified by all of that like i absolutely horrified and i i just i i don't understand like and then and, and then there's an ability that if you're against that you're somehow a monster you know, and I'm yeah. sure there are things on the right where, like, they feel the same thing. The people who are more um, conservative, like, you believe this and, you know, whatever. But this yeah, is just, gay marriage for them is, like, one of those things. Yeah. Like, you're yeah. telling two people who love each other that they can't have the legal sanctions and protections of their union. You're a monster. You're all, you only want people to marry who are just like you, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I just – and just this – and, like, with – so, like, the whole – um. um the New Zealand thing is just another I, – I just uh, – yep. I, I want to get to that in just a bit. But um, the the electoral college, the way we're having the, like the tone of the conversation to me is so interesting because what we should be arguing about is like why did they set it up in, yeah. in the first place and does that still apply now? Right. Because – it is interesting when you have a lot – you have a lot like minorities that live in the bigger areas, more like you know, like urban areas, not so much in um, in um, middle America. Like that – so that, 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 that does like provide a very unique um, dynamic that I think we need to talk about. How does that fit within electoral college? But at the same time, if they do this and they get rid of that, you are alienating two-thirds of the country's – um, not necessarily population, but like um, area, you know, yeah. space, landmass. Like you're completely alienating them. And I, having like lived in both in both large urban areas and in small town America in that part of the world, like it's very different. And you have different values, and you and you have like 
like in Idaho, if you turn down the wrong street and you get and you get lost and you like and it's, uh, especially if it's during the like winter time and say there's a snow drift which then like shoves your car over to the side of the road and you're stuck there, you could die. Like, like very easily. And it's very easy to get lost. And like, there's no cell phone coverage. It's just, it's just, it's like a unique. And I, I bring that up because like life is just different there. And you have, to, and people have, um, people have um, different values because the way you have to live there is different. So out there, independent uh, autonomy is actually very important because if you aren't able to like do stuff on your own, you could die. Out there, yeah, you know, in a in a way that doesn't really apply to like out here in Cincinnati. Yeah, I mean, there's a level of resilience that you need. Yeah, yeah, to be in a rural environment, 100, percent or an isolated environment, a mountainous environment. You know, like, yeah, it's true that the city. I mean, that's the whole point of the city is that you have such a high population density that everything you need is should be, in at least in theory, within walking distance. You know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. so the thing you fear the most is your next door neighbor, not uh, a panther sitting on your father's porch in Florida. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I mean, it's um, like, you know, so, OK, so like here's a really great example. Like there were people I think this was this was a part of the federal government. They wanted to like re-release wolves into this part of Idaho, which is was really bad. Because one of the things that they did was they would spread certain kinds of t- diseases because of their poop. And it just would cause people to get really sick. It would screw up their um, livestock and, like, their livelihood. And, like, and it, it was caused to people who don't live there and don't experience that. You know? And so if you – and, like, to me, the brilliant part of the, of the electoral college is that it gives those people a voice gives them a seat at the table that if you had um, a straight-up democracy, they wouldn't have. Uh, there's a reason there's an electoral college. Uh, the founders thought uh, that we should not be like the French. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote in his great book, Democracy in America, that uh, France is governed by this large uh, entity called Paris, and uh, that uh, it's like the head of the spider, and the other parts are the uh, thin legs. And uh, Tocqueville said the genius of America is that we don't have the country controlled by two large urban masses. Uh, and if you have L.A. and New York basically uh, controlling a large part of the popular vote, that's what you'll have. Wouldn't it give um, you know the bigger states, the, the New Yorks and the Californias of the world, uh, a lot more say, a lot more sway, frankly, in presidential elections? The bigger, vo- the bigger states with population, yes, it certainly would. And I think what the president was saying is right. Uh, you'd run your campaigns through uh, New York City and Los Angeles uh, and the like. And that's not a representation of what the country is or a representation of what the country's interest is. Right. So that's why – was it the last two presidencies were one with – uh, uh, Trump was. that. I think Obama ended up winning the, po- the popular vote yeah, in the long run. Yeah. And so when you have that disparity between the majority of people want this, but the electoral college goes this way, a lot of people get ticked off. And but then it gives undue weight to, you know, the front running states, you know, the Iowa caucus, Mm -hmm. Florida. Yeah. Sure. And all that stuff. Ohio. Yeah. yeah. And so there are problems with that. Oh, yeah. But uh, but that's not to say like that's that should be a part of the conversation. But just to have a straight popular vote, I'm totally against. But it's also interesting, like taking like an even broader look, like if you think about the senators, you know, there's 100 senators, two from every state that represent the country. And the idea was the House of Representatives would be 
will be configured via demographics. So if you have a higher population state, you get more representatives. In mm-hmm. a way, that makes sense. If you have a lower population state, you get less representatives. Well, then the, the smaller states started saying, you know, we're an agrarian uh, state. We're, we don't have huge cities like a New York does or a Massachusetts does. We're, you know, uh, Virginia. And so we're known for our farmland. And because we're known for our farmland, people are spread out. And so you can't just if, – if you could pass federal laws that would destroy the South, then, you know, that that's inherently unjust because we don't have simply enough people to fight off. So the idea of the Senate being the representatives of the state and the House of Representatives being representatives of the people I thought was so key. And now what we've discovered mm-hmm. is – to me, the greatest travesties that ever happened, other than letting women vote, which is awesome, but the greatest travesties of the progressive era to the U.S. Constitution where they allowed for the popular election of senators and mm-hmm. they ended up yeah. capping the number of representatives. I think there needs to be a number of representatives that is still proportionate to the population and it should be in in, in the thousands range. Instead of, uh, what is it, four, four, why am I not forgetting, the 400 plus representatives. Was it 435? Mm-hmm. Is it 435? Uh, uh, that sounds right. It was, just, something it was, it was essentially the just yeah. the number that they had then. They locked it down. They said, listen, we're getting too big. And I can understand the problem of getting too big and trying to have these debates and all this stuff. But I want a representative that's near me that I can talk to. And when you have one representative for every five million people, that is impossible to happen. It's impossible. And so everything becomes statistics and nothing becomes personal. So I'm in favor of bigger government when it comes to having more representatives. And I want it going back to the – I want the repeal of the amendment that allowed for the popular election of senators. Because what happens is you go to a state and you know everyone tries to fund a candidate just because of their political views, not because of what they're going to do for the state against the federal government and preserve states' rights. So, I mean, the 10th Amendment is a joke, and I know that in the U.S. government, um, which is everything not explicitly enumerated in the Constitution belongs to the states or to the people, and that's just a joke. Now it's the exact opposite. Our Supreme Court thinks everything not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution might implicitly still give power to the federal government, and that's, that's a problem that I have. You can't have the rule of law if you have implicit powers you have to have explicit yeah. powers i i don't think that like um i really uh what am i trying to say i don't know but i bet you it's gonna be sexy uh, <laughs> i know that america isn't perfect i know that her government uh, the way that it's arranged isn't perfect right but it's a really good idea yeah it's a really good idea and i think we should definitely uh i actually didn't agree with people would say that the constitution isn't a i'm a living document like the whole point of it was to be a living document to be like to change into like adjust and whatever um but anyways uh but to like throw away the way the government works because you don't agree how it's currently being implemented right now right i i I don't agree with I, i think it's really dangerous i think it's really really dangerous and um like you okay listen th- um the founding fathers have tons of faults especially with our a modern understanding of like the dignity of the, the human person and all this stuff but they were really 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 smart about how they put that government t- together 
And there were tons of things that, that they did that I still don't agree with per se or don't think it's really like the you know, but um, it's a good idea. And to deconstruct all of that because, you know, Thomas – because Thomas Jefferson owned slaves. I'm like, I don't – like, like you know, test everything. Hold on to the good. Yeah. Like find the good that's that's going on there, and like, like yeah, like let's. I mean, you know, because like, it is a problem. Like, how do you when the rural, like you know, like I'm like rural areas don't really care about like minorities, or there's they don't understand the plights of minorities. That's a problem, right? That's you know, so it goes, but it goes both ways. But I just feel like we're throwing out reason, like how, like so. Let's just go into the whole like New Zealand thing. There was such a like we just jump to politics so quickly now with all this stuff yeah, immediately and people i mean people i saw people blaming joe rogan for this people were blaming chelsea clinton <laughs> i'm just like what how how is like like the- this this right here is the result of a massacre stoked by people like you and the words that you put out into the world and i want you to know that and i want you to feel that deep inside 49 people died because of the rhetoric that you put out there If anything, blame the internet, you know, and like, like, let's take a look at like, how can people become like radicalized so easily on, you know? Um, yeah. You have never heard Joe Rogan oh count gosh. encouraging people to be violent against Muslims, but see, yeah. this is the 8%, right? This is the 8% of the ultra extreme left. And this is, I mean, I, I, I'm still doing research and all this stuff and I'm still forming opinions. Hence the whole point of this show. But like part of this is the extremists on the left they're so scared of being called a racist themselves or, you know, a bigot that anything that reeks of disagreement, they point and call everyone else. Oh, you're a bigot. You're this, you're that. And I'm sure that's part of what they're doing with Joe Rogan and Chelsea Clinton. I mean, this Muslim American woman came up and just screamed at Chelsea Clinton saying that she was responsible for the gunman because of uh, a tweet or a couple of tweets that she had said where she kind of defended the Israeli lobby against a Muslim, uh, a Muslim representative. And, uh, and she, she accused him of being anti-Semitic. There's no need for anti-Semitism. And it's one woman. I mean, she just reams her out in front and it's like arguing. And it, it is just amazing how the idea that, I mean, number one, this guy was crazy. The guy that did this act, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I agree with everyone out there. Do not put this on the news. Do not. I'm glad that people are starting to yeah, do boycott, that. Yeah. Boycott. The, I mean, it's so shocking. It is news. And it's so shocking. I can understand the impulse to want to put it up there. But I would tell everyone, like, keep it in uh, encrypted law enforcement officials and then lock that stuff down. Because mm-hmm. if we allow these public acts, I mean, people who are uh, who don't care, they are going to um, they're going to continue doing this. People, and they'll they'll make a grandstand of their suicide if they're already nihilists. They're going to go out with a bang. It's it's horrific. It's horrific. And I I um I really admire how um I think it's their prime minister out in New Zealand. I don't think she's. A president. I really admire how she's handled a lot of this. Um, just like she paid for the funerals of of like you know everyone. I, th- I thought that was awesome. 
think it's really, really cool. And um, how uh, – I mean, I don't know anything about her politics. I'm sure there's some people who are like, well, you know, whatever. I'm just saying right. how she handled this. I think it's great. Um, uh, how she, you know, has been she's, – she's trying to draw more attention to th- the victims than the person, you know, and all, all this stuff. Um, I I really struggle with like, you know, it's 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 tough because it's always it's very easy to think that you, like you live in like the darkest of of times. We right. forget like World War Two, you know, and the fact that we had like tens of millions of of people died. I think it was up to sixty million people died in World War Two. Um, and I mean that's if if there was ever a time to feel like you were I'm living during the end of the world, yeah. Um, that'd be one of them. Um, the black, like the, like, you know, black plague being another one, like yeah. a third of the population dies. Um, it's very easy thing to think that God has just like abandoned you. Yeah. You know? And, um, but it feels so like our culture now feels so post like hope, you know, post like this whole kind of post Christian world that we're in and this like real like lack of hope. Mm-hmm. I think is really dangerous and I don't know. And I don't know how to navigate that yet. I don't know what that looks like. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you can navigate a world without hope. And you know, that phrase that you said, um, you know, someone, and I've heard it several different places, but you said it recently. um, What is it like? I don't believe in God, but I sure do miss him. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yep. Who said that? I, uh, sorry, he's dying. People, he's dying. Uh, um, so this was a this was a thing that Derek Webb uh, had on his on his Twitter account because he's now totally and I think he's agnostic, but or he might be an atheist. But anyways, yeah. um, he's I can't remember who it was, but it says I don't believe in God anymore, but I sure do miss him, or there are, or at times I really do miss him yeah. or something like that. Well, so I think about like. Um, so one of these uh, sociologies of religion from these two atheists, they were talking about why do people become extremists within religion? And one said people are gravitate towards a religion because of meaning, purpose, and mission, because of uh, a sense of community and interconnectedness, and then a sense of control in an out-of-control world or situation. And he said it's that last one that leads people to become extremists. The idea being um, when people want to control others – when that goes to extreme, um, there is this whole new impulse within religion. And they talk about how it's not just within religion. It's also within anti-religion, such as a- the new atheism and all of this stuff. But the interesting thing that I keep coming back to is if we don't receive or discover meaning, that is something that we feel like is divinely given, then that means the only meaning we can find is meaning that we invent. And what's the point? It's just as fake as everything else that we play pretend with. Mm. Like, like, and yeah. So I'm listening to this atheist scholar, and he's going through talking about how it's his mission to pull religious people out of religions, and you have to deprogram them. And he's just treating all religions, for the most part, like a cult. And uh, he said, you know, and part of his war is a war on progressive secularism, which he views as a religion. And he said this phrase, you have to... Um, Ah, damn it. What was the phrase that he said? It was so money. Oh, he said, you have to show how these gender studies and race studies and all of this stuff are based on 
on pure conjecture and political correctness, and they're not based on a pursuit of the truth. And whatever happened in the sciences about the pursuit of the truth, and that was from one of the guys that did the hoax on those religious uh, the um, gender studies journals. Did you hear about that? So they took like the most nonsensical things. They took quotes from Mein Kampf and all this stuff, and they just put gender and politically correct terminology within them. And then they sent them mm. to peer-reviewed mm-hmm. scholarly journals, and like seven of them made it into these journals. And it was a pure hoax. Like it was totally made-up bullcrap that, that had nothing – like one of them, they call it the dog-humping article where it was essentially like overcoming male heterosexual normativity uh, by and rape culture by analyzing dog-humping in the park in a dog park and it's like the most Ugh. absurd thing and they were just totally it was just a hoax and it like made all this peer review status and all this stuff it was it's just insane working so he just starts writing his experience not his experience this absurd made up experience at the dog park about he sits at the dog park 4 or 5 hours a day but never in heavy rain and observes dogs and their they, their humping behavior they, and their fights. They genital, closely observes the genitals of close to 10,000 dogs. Yeah, inspect the genitals. And you're very genitals. committed, Pete. I am committed, uh, unless it's raining. And then interrogate <laughs> their owners as to their sexual orientation. But we needed something else in there. You know, like choice lines, dog parks are petri dishes for canine rape cultures. But we need something else. And again, the trick to this thing is what's morally fashionable? Who has the most oppression variables? So I thought, well, you know, a black female criminologist. So then I, like, Googled black female criminology, and I just looked at Wikipedia, and it was like so I found someone, I'm like, okay, let's look at this through a lens of black female criminology. They can't reject it because they'd be saying that there's something wrong. They'd be not validating someone's lived experiences. Mm-hmm. So we looked at the whole thing through black feminist criminology. Boom. Published. So we got seven of those in or accepted with seven more. The Mein Kampf rewrite. Yeah, wait, let's not gloss over that one because okay. this, this is actually. But this guy talks about the, whatever happened to the pursuit of truth, whatever happened to the pursuit of what's real. And I'm sitting here listening to him and I'm like, buddy, that's just another invented meaning because there's no such thing as truth. There's no ground of truth. And so I, I don't know. I just I keep coming back to like. This society is untenable. Yeah, it's, that's exactly it's, how I feel. It's untenable, yep. and I think we, I think we know it. And I think it's not just that God is dead, and I but I still wish I knew him or whatever. I no longer believe in him. It's like we are looking around as quickly as we can for some rock to hold on to, and some of it, the only rock we have is race, and some of the only rock that we have is you know gender liberation and sexual orientation liberation, and some of us it's our religion. And so we become fanatical in all the wrong ways about this stuff because ultimately there is no meaning. And we're like grabbing these things saying, give me meaning, give me meaning, tell me what I am and who I am. Hey, everyone, Mike Gormley here. You may not know this if you're a new listener, but Luke and I consider our greatest, most important episode to be episode number eight, Authentically Honest About Pornography. And the reason being is that's where our show hit its stride in terms of our voice, the level of authenticity and truthiness and, and especially vulnerability that we were going to let ourselves have on this you know, international show. And to be honest, we've received the most amount of feedback positively from 
people about that show. And I want to say, while it is a good thing for people to talk about openly their struggles and their issues in order to let people know that they're not alone and that there is hope and healing, Strive 21 is something else altogether. Matt Frad, yes, another Matt Frad commercial, partnered with Cardinal Studios, and they created this amazing program, a 21-day guide to help you break free from pornography. They're going to launch it in these batches four times a year to try to get as many people signed up as possible, as many men signed up as possible. Ladies, your uh, Strive version is coming out next year. But the goal is right now to get as many men signed up as possible in these four times a year clumps so that people can journey through this process together. So many of us are using pornography. We're stuck in it. We're addicted to it. But hey, maybe this year doesn't have to look like last year or the year before. Strive 21 is going to help you break free from porn and live the life you're called to live. I want to thank Matt Frad and Cardinal Studios and the fine folks at Strive 21 for sponsoring this show. Check them out in the link in the show notes. and Let them know you came from us. Do you think that's why people get so obsessed with, I forget her name, but that AOC Congress rep from Brooklyn and um, I'm drawing a blank on these guys' names. The, and then, then the guy from Texas who's about to run. Beto. Um, yeah. yeah, and Elizabeth Warren, but AOC is is the main one. Uh, I mean, she is she's fascinating because you can tell she's super intelligent. She's super like relatable. If you just sit there and listen to her, you can tell that she's researched a lot. But man, she is a hundred percent wedded to radical progressivism. To the point where, mm-hmm. I mean, like, I, I don't know. Did you hear about the whole Amazon coming to New York? Yeah, yeah. I was in the car when we were, I'm talking to John's dad about that. Remember? Oh, I don't you even, I don't, I was probably daydreaming. But the, <laughs> sitting in the back of the truck. Uh, no, but one of the things was, she kept saying, like, we don't want, because Amazon was going to get $3 billion in tax discounts so that they could set up their headquarters. And she kept saying, well, we're against this because in New York, we don't, want to spend $3 billion on wealthy corporation. We'd rather do that for, for uh, education and feeding the poor and all this stuff. And she didn't realize that these were discounts. It's like, it's not that the money existed. They were tax breaks. It, the money doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. There's not $3 billion that New York is giving to Amazon. It's just that Amazon gets to keep up to $3 billion in these tax breaks. And she got them to vote no. And then all of these Democratic uh, people, representatives, politicians, and whatnot from New York State were like, no, 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 no. Don't do You just took away 45,000 jobs and $10 billion in revenue. Thank you. Thank you. And then afterwards, she was like, you know, it was the people of Brooklyn. It wasn't me. And she started to backtrack. And you're like, wow, what? Like, I don't know. I, I this is when these these politics as ideology or politics as metaphysics I think is just killing us. Yeah, and I, it's the loss of metaphysics I think that I've that I I uh, what is being what is like what is it like that, that's I'm and I, I I am not an expert I've taken I took one undergrad class in it 15 years ago so well the idea is when you look at Aristotle's bookshelf of books right you have politics 
physics, and then you have metaphysics. And the word metaphysics just means beyond physics. It, it literally meant the book after physics, <laughs> you know? So it was this idea that, well, if politics – metaphysics is the highest study of being itself, including divine being and all that stuff. Underneath it is politics because it's the study of the highest creature within the universe. And then, and then you have the physics. And the idea is once you get rid of metaphysics, which we have done since the 1800s, once you scrap metaphysics, all you have left is politics. But once you get rid of God, all you have left is your neighbor. All you have left is your political narrative, your, your you know, all that stuff. And that's, I, I don't know, like, I, I'm just really, really scared, dude. I'm not going to lie. I am, I, I don't even want to, I, you know, I don't look at the news. 90% of the news I never even see. So I found out about this New Zealand thing because I was going to post like a funny picture on Twitter and I saw all this stuff and I was like, what happened to New Zealand? Right. And I was like two days late. Well, at least we have the church as a refuge. Nothing terrible going on there. <laughs> See, sick. No, oh, gosh. There's a Belgian uh, yeah. cardinal named Cardinal Daniels. I think that's how you say his name. I mean, that guy, that guy should not only be excommunicated, but he should be denied a Christian burial. He should, you know, like this guy, this guy is like the worst of the worst when it comes to Catholic cardinals and, and any clergy. They, they published a catechism where they had like drawings of like toddlers saying sexually explicit stuff about touching myself what? and all this. It was essentially a grooming manual called what a catechism. Hell? Yeah, and uh, I mean, they used to run um, in the '80s. They would. There's a group of Catholics and Protestants who ran um, parish meetings that talked about how pedophilia could inform your Christianity, how parents don't need to be anti-pedophilia, and why it's important to build trust and all this stuff. It's the most bizarre thing, but people don't realize like there was a pro-pedophilia movement. In the United States and Europe in the 80s and 90s. Like, there is a real organization that Bill Clinton granted consulting status at the United Nations called the National American Man-Boy Love Association. Or if you watch South Park, the National Association of Marlon Brando Impersonators. Or something like that. <laughs> Marlon Brando actors. People. Right. And the, But it was a whole episode about NAMBLA. And how horrible it was, right? And how it's it's so horrible that it's actually a real organization that encourages people to have sexual intercourse with children, right? And they maintain an orphanage in Thailand where they fly their members because there's no statutory rape laws out there. Oh, everything's terrible. Right, okay, so hear that. And then remember that Bill Clinton granted them consulting status at the UN. George W. Bush rescinded it. There was all this clamor, but nothing was really being done about it. Because the narrative was they were born that way. Who are you to tell them not to act on their impulses? And then you have the spotlight scandal. And I remember reading this secular uh, journalist who said the one good thing that came out of the pre-sex abuse scandal was it ended uh, the growing influence of pro-pedophilia groups in American politics. And I was like, what the hell? Right, but this guy, I mean, there there were these groups. Now you find them on Twitter. It's called non-offending minor attracted nomas, and they put in their Twitter profile, 
N-O, non-offending, M-A, minor attracted, and then they put, like, colon 4-6-Y-O. So they'll say, I'm, I'm, attract, I'm sexually attracted to four- to six-year-olds. Uh, oh, my god! And that's gosh. what they put in their Twitter profile. And they'll, they'll say, oh, I'm non-offending. I've never – I have never and I would never, trust me. But this is who I'm sexually attracted to and how to, and there's whole groups and, and, you know, all this stuff. And you can do research. You can find this stuff for yourself. This is not some uh, Hillary Clinton selling human trafficking underneath a pizzeria. This is all – like I've, I've seen their Twitter profiles with my own eyes. Like it is shocking. It is scary. And it is rampant. And then you have this cardinal – who was using essentially a catechism published in Belgium. And now, and he was at the Synod on the Family. And you're like, what, what that, literally, what the hell is happening here? Like, I mean, hey, Europe, you know how you were the cradle of Christianity? You will not exist. It, we will be a church of Africans and Asians, and I'm okay with that. Uh, yeah, seriously, bring on the African bishops, please, for the love of God. <laughs> bring on the Asian underground. Come on. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. Like, it is It is horrific what is happening. It is horrific. So, Luke, I'm going to say this. Why are you Catholic? <laughs> I don't know. You know what's funny? Well, uh, the, the fact that we're too that uncomfortable special. to answer that question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I've been in a period of of my life and my faith where I really like discovered more of like what the church actually is and like a really good way to how the church brings Christ into the world and church bears Christ just, just, just like the blessed mother and blah, 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 blah. Um, it, it's because of like who the, yeah, I don't, it's, it's so hard, man. It's, uh, what am I trying to say? I'm in a weird place because I, I found myself becoming more like more in love with my, Catholic faith, but more and more disgusted by uh, this, like her leaders. I mean, like everyone is. So, it, it, the only the only answer I have to this is that we need to like just be more Catholic. You know, it's just like when your marriage is in a hard spot. Like, you know, like probably um, two out of every three times, the answer is to just you need to like just devote yourself more towards your marriage. <sighs> you, yeah. You know, and it's tough. It's it's it can be really difficult because it just like I have like yeah. It's I found that my respect for um and I love my 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 archbishop, but my respect for like bishops and cardinals and everything across the board has just, it's gone. Yeah, it's completely gone. Cardinal Donardo just had a minor stroke. I heard. God bless him, man. It's it's. I think it's funny that I am. Now that the sex abuse scandal, probably maybe six months before, I have been diving into what I call the ecclesial dimension of faith, right? This notion that there's no such thing as like radically individualized Christian faith, right? You can't have faith without the church. And what does that mean? And what does that look like? I really felt like I've gone my whole life thinking of faith as my belief in God. And that's it. And while obviously that's a part of it, it's not all of it. And what makes it, you know, specifically Catholic is this ecclesial dimension of faith. It's not just I accept Jesus into my heart as my personal Lord and Savior, but it's the church that presents that faith and proposes that faith and nourishes that faith. 
And I find it funny that I've been studying the ecclesial dimension of faith about six months before the scandal breaks, when it would be easy to say, well, I still love Christ, and the church has clearly abandoned him, therefore I'm going to abandon this church and go to another one mm-hmm. or have my own thing yeah, or yeah. just, you know, and, and, and maybe that's the poverty of these, these um, evangelicals who are, what do we call it, De- deconstructing their discipleship, mm-hmm. right? Like, maybe they only have an individualist faith. They don't have this understanding of the ecclesial dimension of faith. So they see failed church leaders. They see hypocritical musicians. Imagine that. Um, and all of the kind of the scene of like Aaron Gillespie and Derek Webb. And they just see the rotten side of it or the, you know, the false external side. But that's all they have is their individualist expression of faith. Whereas for me, like, I, and just what you were saying, you said like, I love the church, but, you know, I'm critical of her leadership. Or I've never been more disappointed with her leadership. Um, like, isn't it funny that we can see the church and see the hierarchy as both a part of it and not fully it? Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that's part of developing this habit of an ecclesial dimension of faith. Like, I would never, I would never in a million years leave the Catholic Church. Because I believe it's the one true church founded on the rock that is St. Peter's Confession of Faith and the Office of Peter. At the same time, I got a lot of beef with the Office of Peter, the guy who's holding the Office of Peter and all the other apostolic successors. Like, I'm really frustrated right now. There's a few bright lights, but most are dim bulbs, if not broken completely. And so, but there's this element in my own faith life where I'm like, yeah, but I'll never leave the church. I'll never leave the church. You kidding me? You kidding me? Mm. Sue from Parish Council. Susan. <laughs> Easy, Judy. Um, there's, there's, a, there's always a Judy. No, you're right. Like, that's a really good point that I think we're starting to see. In a weird way, this is one of the good things I think that could come out of all of this is that we see the church for what it is and we stop um, viewing her leaders as being and like like um the like uh, damn it look you're, you're well like doing the leaders aren't the entirety of the thing yes which i think you could say we've done in the past about people like john like john like like john paul ii yeah a heroic uh yeah. man an intellectual giant uh a, a man who saw the papacy as serving the church not there was no ounce of pettiness in him yes yep yep and it, I think it was easy for us when you grew up with that kind of being all that you knew and had such poor, and you know, the um, the bulk of us had such poor parish experiences. So we looked towards Rome, like the, he he kind of was like the broader church, and yeah. And when he when that goes so well, and then when it doesn't go so well, and you you have to start to you know understand not not the difference but like what the church is and how her leaders fit in into that it makes it easier to criticize them and understand how they're not necessarily one and the same with the church yeah where i think within within the protestant church it's much harder to do that you know, if you have a leader who falls or you see the hypocrisy of the of these people, it's like, well, like, is this whole thing not true? That's that's interesting. And and you have this idea of 
like a, in the Catholic Church, we view the hierarchy almost like the military. You salute the office, not the man. And St. Paul talks about his own office as an apostle, as a divine office. And so when you think about it from that perspective, like, I can respect the papacy while having profound reservations about, you know, Alexander the Fourth and the other Medici popes. And, you know, like, I, I think some conservative backlash against Francis is just, like, way overblown craziness. Um, like when Patrick Coffin blasted him for saying about, like, a, the church is like a grieving mother now. And he's like, enough with the feminizing language. And you're like... The church has always been seen as a mother. Like, come on. Like, what? She's the bride of Christ. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, uh, you know, like, it's like they can't do anything right. And I referenced Patrick, Patrick Coffin because I watched his um, YouTube podcast thing that he had with Taylor Marshall and Tim um, Gordon from Church of Militant on being when you finally take the red pill on Pope Francis and you realize he is a terrible pope. And um and you and so like I'm I'm a little sensitive with the whole Patrick Coffin stuff because I saw that, but the whole idea around office, like in Protestant theology, especially, I mean within Lutheranism you see it right. The priesthood of the Lutheran, a man is a priest only in insofar as he is actively practicing the office. Once he stops, his priesthood ceases. So uh, a man is not considered, like in the Catholic Church, a cons- you know, someone in holy orders who has a sacrament that can- that's received once and lasts you know, forever, puts an indelible mark. They don't have that in Lutheran theology. And then you see that as, as it kind of creeps into the rest of Protestantism where the role of the pastor isn't really an office. It's a verb, right? Like I'm, a, I'm, I'm preaching, therefore I'm a preacher, right? And I think like if the preacher fails – it all kind of fails. Whereas as Catholics, we have that layer. Maybe maybe it's just as simple as a layer of ab- of abstraction where we can say, "Ah, oh, but there's the office that's still good." Like my preacher might suck, but there's no office called the preacher. You know what I mean? Like, mm, yeah. Well, and like the office doesn't uh, it doesn't. Well, this might not be true, but um, it's not like bound to this one person. Yeah. You know, so like like the perish so i don't know if i'm a little bit out of my depth here which is always the case um like at the parish when a priest leaves the parish uh it like the parish doesn't cease to exist yeah you know it, <laughs> that's it's why the, the priest's name is not as is not bigger than the name of the church on the billboard <laughs> I always thought yeah, of that. Yeah. That always weirded me out was I was a little kid growing up in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. I'd be driving down the street, and it's like, Pastor John Hirsch. And then in tiny letters, it'd be like, United Church of Christ. You're like, what? Why? Who cares who the pastor is? Yeah. <laughs> I did not, because I had never gone to a Protestant service. I had no idea how strongly it was driven by the preaching skills and personality of, and leadership of the pastor. I had no idea. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. And, and it... And it and I and I'm not trying to say that like God doesn't work in like those like you know, like yeah. those areas and yeah. stuff, but I think it's 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 more of um, what is the church? Like truly, what is the church? Why does the church exist? What does the church do? Who and what is she? This scandal, as in a weird way, has really helped me understand that on a much deeper level. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I would agree. I would agree. Man alive. What are we going to do, Luke? Set it all on fire. That's what we're going to do. 
and you can continue to help set the church on on fire by going to patreon.com slash cf patreon.com slash cf we didn't um, start the fire it was always it was burning. always burning since the world's been what up the world up the Pope John Paul Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> uh, oh man, Billy Joel. That's a song of his that's not overrated. It's a funny song though. It is definitely a creature of its time. Oh yeah, of course it is. Um, hey, really quick, uh, just just to let everyone know. I apologize if we actually have been not as active on Patreon this past week. I was a dumbass and. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to try to Tell them why you were a dumbass. <laughs> Tell them why. I thought I was locked out, and I was really getting so annoyed with Chrome and my computer, and I was like, what's going on? And Patreon, and I was using the wrong email address. <laughs> this is not the wrong <laughs> password. This is the right password. It's the wrong email. Okay, <laughs> then. <laughs> it was never generating. So for those of you, I mean, I, I know wrong I, email. <laughs> I know I've said this before, it's, but Patreon uh, generates a code and sends it to me because you can only have one person that's in charge of one account. And so I just take the code and send it over to Luke. And he was like, I'm trying to reset it and nothing's happened. I'm like, I'm not getting a code reset. And sometimes Patreon is just a wonky website. But then, then once we found out that he was entering the wrong email address, I got like 37 codes come pouring in, <laughs> including this morning. That's all fun. Because I just set it back up. But so like, because it'll just <laughs> um, randomly log me out. Yeah. So I have to re-log in. So I had to do it on my computer, on my phone, on my iPad, on my work computer. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> just kidding. I never check it there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what are you going to do? Fire me? Whatever. Um, <laughs> this, ladies and gentlemen, is why we don't need to bother with two-week notices. Just get out. <laughs> because no one gives a shit about their job of those two weeks. I remember, That's not true. I remember I was working at a, a pizza restaurant. Called what? Peter Piper Pizza, your great place for birthday parties. This is Gomer. How can I help you? And uh, I've said that so many times. Um, and so I went in. I said, listen, I, I think I'm going to put in a, my month notice. He goes, a month notice? And I go, yeah, I think I'm going to quit. I'm going to try to get another job, blah, blah, blah. And I was a teenager. And he goes, are you quitting today? And I go, yes, I, I believe I am. And he goes, okay, get out. And I was like, what? And he goes, listen, man, you work at a fast food restaurant for a little bit more than minimum wage. If you put in your two weeks notice or four weeks notice, do you really think I'm going to get the best work out of you? Or are you going to be half-assing it the whole time and then one day just be like, you know what, screw this guy and just leave me in the middle of a shift? And I was like, oh, I mean, I wouldn't do that. He goes, you might not, but you can go. And so I left. <laughs> so I was done. That's how I ended my illustrious career. Peter Piper Pizza, your great place for birthday parties. This is Gomer. How can I help you? So funny. I love that you said Gomer. I did say Gomer, and people <laughs> thought it was endearing. <laughs> and you know Gomer. who loved it the most? The Mexicans. Mm. The Mexicans would <laughs> come, awesome. and they would have these huge parties, and they'd be like, is your name really Gomer? And I was like, no, that's my nickname. And they'd be like, oh, my gosh, that's so funny. And they would give me the best tips. Mm. But if I said my name is Michael, they'd be like, oh, colonizer. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. <gasps> I'm sorry for my ancestors. Oh, wait, my ancestors know. died in Mexico. I depending your this. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know how to fix this. I feel anxiety all the time. I'm so overwhelmed by this. Hey, Luke, can I tell you about something that I'm, like, in love with right now? Uh, you sure as can. We haven't cursed at all in this episode. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, do you want to do that again? 
No, no, no. That was perfect, Luke. That was perfect. <laughs> that was perfect, Luke. <laughs> so uh, a buddy of mine recommended a book called Hold On to Your Kids. Mm. And it is a book that I have been reading. I have the audio book. Let me specify that. So I've been listening to this. It's a, it's a pretty hefty book, but I'm going to just go out on a limb and say, if you are a parent or grandparent, or you are a youth minister or young adult minister, or you in any way intersect with kids, teacher, coach, you need to buy this book and you need to listen to it or read it. Um, the whole kind of premise of this book is the reason why in a lot of ways things are so terrible, especially with young people today, is because instead of being parent attached, they are peer attached. And by being attached to their peers, they're essentially asking their peers. And we've been doing it since basically the baby boomers, maybe uh, the generation right before the baby boomers. But we are asking our peers to give us meaning and our identity and our place in the world. Whereas before that, pretty much in all of human history, we were uh, parent attached and at the very uh, – an elder attached, right? So it wasn't just our parents but people of respect, you know, elders in the culture. And kids existed within an adult culture. Now it's like the youth culture has completely splintered off with its own language and, you know, rituals and all, all that stuff from the adult culture. And it's been like that since probably the 40s or 50s in a very real way. You know, anti-truancy laws coming through the Great Depression meant that now more and more young people were staying in high school. So you get a high school culture. You get the rise of adolescence and all that stuff. But this book is blowing my mind when it talks about, like, things like like bullying. In Idaho, did you have – when you were principal out there, did you have a bunch of, like, anti-bullying initiatives? Uh, no, but only because it was a small town, small Catholic school. It wasn't really a problem there. Okay. Uh, see, this but is the, it's a huge issue in all, in all of the schools. Yeah, it's huge. a huge – right. But I would venture to guess – that in schools like the one you did, small schools, small urban envi- or uh, rural environment, um, and it, kind of an intensely Catholic. It used to be a Regnum Christi school, right? Like yeah. originally. Yep. Yep. The I mean, there's there's uh, a specific type of Catholic that you know joins Regnum Christi and all that stuff, especially back Cha-ching. before the. F- <laughs> <laughs> especially before the fall of Father Maciel, but the big thing about that is, like, I bet you, you would never. In 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 a, the next million years, as long as that culture still existed, ever need a zero tolerance bullying policy? Yeah, yeah, no. Bullying might happen, but it won't happen to the point where you have to have these insane policies and do tons of school assemblies around it and all this stuff. But I mean, like here at the Woodlands, like high school and the middle schools and the elementary schools, it's huge. And the whole argument in, in this book is when you give your peers permission to give you your identity and this is where i think greg iwinski he sent me this article from the new york times months ago about why are teens just suffocating with anxiety i i really do and that's kind of the contention of these authors is that it's because they're asking their peers to give them their identity and their purpose in life that's interesting which empowers their peers at any moment to take it away and so if your peers are 
So like, what is cool? Cool means nothing bothers me. Cool means I'm not phased. I'm not super excited about stuff. I'm, uh, you know, cool has a whole bunch of different dimensions, but part of it is I'm popular because I don't give an F about anything too much, right? And who gets marginalized first are those who do give an F about certain things like school. So they're labeled nerds, right? And so you have this um, peer chilling effect on anyone who gets outside of the box. And so the peers, the the whole idea of if they're not attached to the parents as the source of identity, then they're going to attach to the peers. And if their peers mm, reject mm-hmm. them, if their peers reject them, then what do they have left but an abyss? Yeah, and so, no, totally. And, and right now I'm going through the part on on violence and aggression. And it talks about, you know, everyone has aggression. Aggression is born from sustained frustration. Why do we get frustrated when we can't satisfy these ends that we have and all this stuff? And he, he's kind of working you through it. But then he talks about, but when does it become like acts of extreme violence? And like he, he has a note that a kid wrote to his parents. He was like 12 and his parents wouldn't let him go to a, a Halloween party sleepover. Because they were just too nervous about the whole situation. I would never in a million years let my kids do that. And uh, the kid Hmm. wrote this note like, if you don't let me go to Jason's and stay over, then other people are going to become his friend. And they won't consider me or think about me the next time everyone goes and does something. And they'll have all these experiences together without me. And I can't be a part of it. And and I'm just going to effing go kill myself because you're not effing, you know, letting me be attached. And it's this kid writing a letter to his parents the day he got grounded. And they were scared of their kid. And then he basically is saying how he's going to kill himself. He's going to hurt someone else. And, yeah, you know, he didn't. But... Like, how did it get that way? And their whole thing is like, this is the rampant rise of bullying. And it's only made 10 times worse with the anima technica vacua of social media. Yeah. Like, because now you're able to bully people 24-7. You know, I've I've had thoughts about that because, I mean, this is like when when education was my world. I've thought about like that whole peer dynamic a lot and now uh, but i've uh but not at any sort of like depth of, at that level that's i, I think that's 100 percent accurate i mean being a little yeah. hyperbolic but i i think that that makes sense and then imagine if you have other adults so l- imagine you have problems at home and you don't attach to your parents you can very easily attach to a coach or a teacher but what if they don't do that yeah and then you're all all you have is your um peers and and then the whole idea of developing their own language developing their own dress uh there's a guy on mtv who said a couple years ago and it's quoted in the book um kids today all over the world dress talk and act more alike than they do their parents and grandparents and so hmm. when you think of it from that perspective, we're destroying cultures, right? Like we, mm. we are destroying the traditional dress and, and family traditions and customs. Like we're destroying it by having these peer-attached cultures that are media fosters. Like I, I notice these streaks with my kids and I'm like, we freaking homeschool our kids. They're not kids their age in our neighborhood. All the kids they hang out with are like rock star good kids. I'm like, why, are, why sometimes do they act – like this and then i realize like 
the models of all children entertainment is peer entertainment or peer attachment entertainment. I mean, think about Disney movies, okay? How many Disney movies does the child character have a healthy and strong attachment to the parents? Every one of those Disney movies, for the most part, the parents are dead or the whole it's a it's a coming of age movie and the whole definition of coming of age is i'm rejecting my parents plans for me like mulan until i can prove that i'm worthy or better or just as good or my way is yeah. better than their way it's the it's, whole child knows best thing yeah which is which is a lie and so if you are asking your peers to help guide you in this world and they have no idea then you're going to fail every time. And let me tell you who profits the most from this is, I think, is, is business. Are there they are businesses. So, like, for instance, uh, this one comment was – it was a very passing comment. And it thought, made me think of our interview with Leah Darrow where they said, the only thing that matters to young people is what's new today and tomorrow. They don't care about the past. And the example that he used was these statistics around South Africa after apartheid, right? So that you know, blacks horribly segregated against and, you know, a, you know, stripped of rights and all of this stuff. Um, and now they're not. And the young people constantly uh, exclaim, like, how annoyed they are that they're being taught about racism and apartheid in the past. And, like, we don't care. We just want to listen to our music and hang out with our friends. You know, it's like typical teenager response, but it's like we don't care about the past. We only care about today and tomorrow. And so when they said that, I was like, they only want what's new. And it reminded me of Leo Darrow talking about fast fashion and how in, it, it's kind of like a response to and an amplification of the culture where uh, H&M has 52 weeks a year of seasons. And they completely empty their stores and then completely restock them with next week's season of fast fashion. And so it's like the corporate model echoes and then amplifies what's happening in the youth culture, making the youth culture even worse. Mm -hmm. And then if you have a culture that's so devoid of hope or purpose, it's just an endless cycle. And I think this is where like Balthasar is getting at when he says that when he talks about the anima technica that uh is like where do you make contact I, I i think it says what is the point of contact in this i don't know like where how do you break through that well it, it's funny and and this also goes back to our conversation about liquid culture i really do feel like reading this parenting book has shown me like all these different links in a chain um like when we talk about liquid culture, culture that changes all the time is a youth culture. So, and I've been saying for years, ever since I was a youth minister and started studying this stuff more academically, that youth culture is the dominant culture. It used to be adults and children and children were mm -hmm. a subset within the adult culture. And the whole point of being a kid was you couldn't wait to be an adult. Now it's adults really, really wish they were young again. And you have 50-year-old yeah. women wearing the clothing of a 20-year-old. No. So this is, this is going to like age me a bit, but when I first started to teach full time, I was amazed at the amount of parents that dressed in American Eagle clothes, specifically moms. Right. It right. really 100%. blew me away because I was like, I was, you know, coming out of like, I stopped like shopping there at some point in time when I was in, in college. I be like, why are all these parents in America? Weird. <laughs> what the hell is wrong with you? Yeah. 
Go to Forever 21 like a... Like a <laughs> <laughs> Go to Coles like a gentleman. Um, it's but called that Nordstrom Rack. Look it up. <laughs> Big savings on uh, designer brands. Um, but the the whole idea surrounding that, right, is like... Have you ever heard of the Merchants of Cool? You ever heard of it? it was a PBS documentary in the late 90s or early 2000s? I don't think so. <laughs> it was pretty powerful because they, like, walk you through how businesses decide and market what is cool. And they go to the most absurd fringes. Like, they go to ICP concerts. You remember Insane Clown Posse? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And here are all these people in Do suit. I ever? <laughs> My brother was really into them. But there's all these people <laughs> <No>. <laughs> in suits and ties and, and, and what do you call uh, – yeah, you know, power suits, you know, like the typical like Madison Avenue. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they're all walking around this insane clown posse concert, taking pictures of, you know, one guy's wearing like a gas mask from World War Two. And these people, all these women are covered in like the goth looking um uh like fishnet arm you know sleeves and stuff like that and this one woman's taking pictures of these guys tattoos and they're talking about all this stuff and then they try to mass market that. And it's fascinating how it's like the culture at the extremes yesterday becomes the edgy brand today becomes mainstream tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And it's Mm -hmm. done on purpose. And when you start to put all of this together, you see how the brokenness is being magnified by the society. So here we go, Luke. I'm going to say it. So when I started looking into woodworking, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was i was on the wondering when we were gonna get to this <laughs> one of the things that i discovered is that there, there's this whole there's two different sides of woodworking power tools and hand tools and you, you can buy the power tools and they're about 100 150 bucks each or you know 300 if you get in a table saw or whatever but once you get out of the world of power tools and you get into the world of, like, chisels, like hand tools that don't require any power and mm-hmm. pl- hand planers and joiners and stuff like that, um, the funny thing that they say is, you know, you can pick one of these up at a flea market made in the 1890s or the 1920s for about $60 if they're well-maintained. And then you realize that these physical objects made not in a liquid culture, but in like a what, what was the opposite? A solid culture? What did he call it? Besides uh, liquid, I don't remember. I need to read. I need to read that. It's yeah. been a while. Instead of a liquid culture, it's a a, a turgid culture, a uh, <laughs> engorged culture. Um, but no. So you <laughs> so you have this. You have this. Um, like here's a physical object in the world that's endured a hundred years. And it works the same today as it did 100 years ago. Like, to me, that's what I'm finding so fascinating. Like, you can go buy a Stanley hand planer from the 1930s made out of iron. And if, if you can scrape the rust off it and hone the blade, you have a, a working tool that will do its job. Hmm, and yeah. it's, it's fascinating. And then, you, I mean, this is Pope Francis's genius where he talks about a throwaway culture. If everything is new, if fashion is new every week then what do I do with last week's fashion? I donate it or I throw it in the trash. So it's yeah. this throwaway culture that we're creating. Meanwhile, when I was in, in Guatemala, um, amongst the Quiche people, the women wear traditional dresses that they've worn for millennia. And, the, I mean, they only own one dress. So what do they do when it rips? They repair it. And you get back to that, like, uh, brave, uh, brave New World, uh, why mend when you can spend? Mm-hmm. 
And that's that's like we intentionally create jeans where the denim isn't thick so that when they rip and tear, you got to go out and get a new one. You know, like all yeah. of that or just keep it ripped and look like a punk rocker. But uh, <clears throat> I don't know. So I'm starting to like formulate all of this stuff and seeing all this stuff. And like with the bullying, the Columbine, the like Columbine um, massacre kind of being reduplicated it's, over and over again. Like, yeah, it's, it's been 20 years to this, man. Next Next month. Yeah, and it's getting even. Oh, that's right. Uh, oh, same day as our anniversary, so it'll be our fifth year of this podcast on April twentieth when Columbine happened too. Oh wow! Uh, but in Canada, there's been like all these teen, like grisly teen murders and school shootings. It's not just America. In the UK, in Liverpool, there was a horrible one. But it's like, where are all these acts of aggression coming from amidst um, uh, amidst the young people? Mm-hmm. And the author's whole point is when they don't have these stable attachments to parents, when parents don't tell, give the kids their identity and then shelter them in, in good ways, uh, become a shield against the evilness in the world. Instead, from a very young age, it's like we send them off to school as early as possible. We put them in front of a TV. You know, you put them in youth sports. Where the where it's all just the same thing being amplified more and more and more, and and we do the consumer thing and all of that stuff, and you you wonder how you even could raise kids in this environment, and I feel like I'm seeing it more and more clearly every day. Like, like so, for instance, I know a five year old who had a better iPhone than I had, right? A uh, five year old. No, so no, the no parents bought him, right? They are their parents, bought, and so what? What did my daughter say the very that like that day? Can I have but, one? Yeah, but daddy, other people are getting them. But daddy, mm-hmm. I want one. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you won't be like, you'll be 16 when I get you something like that. Like, I, I would never buy a middle schooler an iPhone. No, no, no. Yeah. In a million years. And parents, if you've done it, take it away from them today and give them yeah. a dumb phone. Agreed. If you need to say, get them a pager from the 1990s from the Captain Marvel movie. Or a move. phone, <laughs> a page. Let kid, make paging cool again. Um, <laughs> Put that on a red hat. <laughs> make paging great again. Uh, th- there was some phone that I saw. I think this was a tech guy. I don't know. I don't remember who it was, but like they, he gave his kid a phone. They could only call four numbers. <laughs> I was like, it's a great idea. It's a oh, great man. idea. Like only receive call from from like call and receive from four numbers. Verizon has some uh, program that they'll run, some service that they'll run from their Verizon. I can't remember what it's called, but it'll it'll like if you list this phone as a miner's phone, it'll track all of their calling and let you read all of their text messages. Thank God they've got to do a better job of that stuff. One hundred percent, one hundred percent, man. 100%. Listen, people, technology has outpaced civilization. Technology has outpaced parenting. It's outpaced growing up. Mm-hmm. It is doing things to us that we are not capable of even understanding yet. Well, and it's weird because I, I think a lot of people were expecting it to just like be like robots who, you know, take jobs. And that's, and that's going to happen. But I think this is... Um, like it's already like it's like that whole the technology starting to become too big and replace parts of our our um, lives. Which again, I think everyone thought was going to be like um, robots taking everyone's um, um, a job, except for those who work at nonprofits. Um, 
<laughs> I, I, uh, job security. Um, I, I like, I, uh, kind of wonder if like it's already happened, but it's just in a different form. And so you have, you, you have a lot of popular like media stuff where it's all about like machines who take things over and they just try to like kill like humanity, you know, like, um, specifically, uh, talking about, the Terminator films, but I, I kind of wonder if that's really started to happen, but just in a way that we weren't expecting. So it's not so much they're trying to like attack and kill us, obviously, but they they are. It's almost subverting everything. Yeah, don't build robots and arm them with guns so that they can shoot us. Instead, write software and arm them with Angry Birds so we just won't give a shit when they take over the world. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, uh, Go ahead. Go ahead and uh, take over everything. I still get to poop and play Angry Birds. Okay, good. Good. I'm good. Ugh, man. Ooh. Well, hey. Yeah. Well, hey. At least we have Jesus. At least we have... At least we have the hierarchy. Oh. Um... (laughs) Did I tell you that I talked at uh, at that Catholic Ecological Awakening Summit thing? Did I tell you about yes. that? I want to hear it, but I have to pee like a mofo. Can you give me just like two minutes? I will for you. Thank you. Hello, Sansa. Hello, Clarice. Man. So uh, let's wrap this up, man. How are we going to wrap it up? Um. Man, the world is hopeless, and I am no longer afraid to die. But take courage, for Christ has conquered the world. Yeah. And um, keep on keeping on. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There we We'd go. like to thank our sponsors. <laughs> yes, our sponsors, Strive21. And uh, make sure you click the link provided in this show notes to let them know you came from Catching Foxes. We get a little kickback and they get to know that uh, that their advertising with us was effective. So strive21.com, but go through our link in order to get there. Let's go head over to Kickstarter and fund Matt Frad. We got like 10 and nine days left to fund his book um, on the five ways of St. Thomas Aquinas. It's going to be great. Um, and then, and Matt does not make any money. He wanted us to remind you of that this is all going to be done for free, just for the book. All the money's going into the book. Yeah, so, he does it with a lot of his books. I like that. Yeah, man, it's awesome. It is awesome. Uh, so yeah, thank you to our sponsors and Luke. I will look forward to seeing you on Sunday. Thunder Sunday Fun Day. Sunday Fun Day with the besties. <laughs> uh, remember, pray for my daughter in her first Holy Communion. Bye. Patreon.com slash CF. Alrighty. Bye. Stamps.com slash CF. Oh, gosh. <laughs>